Messages in Nehemiah, chapter 11. Has anybody in the room seen the musical Hamilton? Or am I missing the mark with this illustration? Okay, some. There was a musical, Hamilton, kind of a big deal a couple years ago. Very popular. Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr covers their life. Um, but there's a song in there called The Room Where It Happens. And Aaron Burr is having a conversation with Alexander Hamilton, and they're vying for political power. And Aaron Burr's jealous of Alexander Hamilton's influence. And Hamilton uh, explains to him how they had a, a backroom meeting, had a dinner one night, and decided they were going to move the capital from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., but they were going to keep the banks. And what Alexander Hamilton says is, hey, you need to be in the room where it happens, where the decisions are made. And the interesting part is Aaron Burr finishes that song by singing, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I've got to be in the room where it happens. And I want you to see this. For Aaron Burr, the purpose of his life was pursuing political power. Today, what you're going to see is a group of people who have a different purpose for their life. All of you have a purpose that you're choosing to live your life for. Don't answer out loud, but in your own heart, in your own mind, right now, what is the purpose for which you are living for today? Some people choose to make their purpose wealth. They're going to pursue that. Some people will make it popularity. Some people a profession. Some people will be their family. And in and of itself, none of those are bad. But I want to encourage you, as the people did in Nehemiah's day, live on purpose for the glory of God. Let God's glory be your purpose. The Westminster Catechism puts it this way. What is the chief end of men? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what you'll find. If you make God your purpose, you'll find joy. This section, Nehemiah 11 through 12, broken up into three sections. first section goes from verse 1 all the way to chapter 12, verse 26, and it shows that the people go to the city. They come to the city. They've got to fill up the city in which they just built the wall around. It's a call to the city, and there's a list of the people who answered the call. In Nehemiah 12, the second section of this, uh, these two chapters, Nehemiah 12, 27 to 43, you see that they dedicate the wall. And then at the end of chapter 12, verses 44 to 47, they provide for the temple. So they come to the city, they dedicate the wall, and they provide for the temple. And you're going to see how that applies to you and to me. And so as we dig in, I want to pray as we get started. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the people that have gathered here this morning. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, I pray that you help us lose all of the things that are distracting our minds and our hearts right now and help us focus on the word you have for us. Father, help us live to your glory. Help us praise you with joy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So number one, live purposefully. In 537 B.C., the first group of exiles returned with Zerubbabel. We read that back in Esther, the book before Nehemiah in the Bible. Nehemiah is there in 445 B.C., and the wall is rebuilt. So that's almost 100 years, but now here's the problem. They just built this wall around this city where God's temple is, and yet people are not there. It's a large city, but people aren't moving to the city. As a matter of fact, this problem we see in Nehemiah 7.4. The city was wide and large, 
but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. That's where we get to Nehemiah 11. So let's read the first two verses. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. It's interesting. They had to draw straws to move to the city which contained the temple where God would be present. And then for time's sake and just for <laughs> fluidity of getting through this, we will not read all of the names in chapters 11 and 12. But just understand, the leaders are listed from here to the middle of chapter 12. You have descendants of Judah, of Perez, of Benjamin, priests, and their associates, heads of families, Levites, the director of thanksgiving and prayer, gatekeepers, temple servants, musicians, and those moving into villages surrounding Jerusalem. That's what fills up this large section in Nehemiah 11 in the middle of chapter 12. And, and I think it's pretty neat to see that their names are written in this book because... They lived purposely for the glory of God. They said, I'll go to the city. I'll live there. Nehemiah 12, 1 through 26, traces the history of those who served as priests and Levites from the time of Zerubbabel to Nehemiah. And what you see is God is protecting his people. This is a hard time to be in Jerusalem. Nehemiah comes because he hears about the wall. It's in bad shape it's burned down it's in rubble it's not safe to be there and yet God is still protecting his people there's still work going on in the temple they're still representing the people before their God now here's the question why is it so hard for people to fill the city you gotta think back in this time there were a couple of reasons I think there's three that that stick out if I move to the city, I'm giving up my land. And what happens on the land? I'm able to grow crops. I'm able to provide for my family. I'm able to feed my children. If I move to the city, there's not enough land for everybody. So now I'm dependent on other people. So it's, it's not a safe spot. You're going to lose out on being prosperous and providing for your family. But also, if there's an enemy another nation coming to attack God's people, are they going to aim at the towns and the villages or are they going to aim at the capital? They're coming to Jerusalem. And the first people they'll hit are all of those in the city. So not only are you losing out on prosperity, you're also losing out on security. But then also, you lose out on convenience and comfort. It's crowded. It's dirty. If you do have a crop close enough within walking distance, that's a long time on the road. Families will be separated. You'll go work the crops, and then you'll come back and live. I hope the rain takes care of the crop as it grows. So the next question, three reasons why not to move to the city. Why would you move to the city? You know how many days it took them to build the wall? 52. 52 days. And do you remember what Nehemiah said? The enemies, when they saw that, lost confidence in themselves because they recognized that God had strengthened our hands. Where was God at work? In the city. Why would God put a wall around the city and not expect his people to fill up the city? 
Next question. In the Old Testament, where did God dwell? Where would his presence show up? Where were the people represented before God? In the temple. And so you want to know my guess in chapter, or chapter 11, verse 2, why people were going to the city? Because they valued God more than they valued stuff. I don't know about you. I'm trying to think, and I hope this is a decision that, that my family and I would make. If God is here, if the high priest is going in representing us before God at the temple, and we've seen in history that his presence fills the temple, I want my house right next door, as close as I can get. Because I'm going to trust God for my security. I'm going to trust God for my provision. I'm going to lean into God for my comfort. We're going. Now, here's my question. Who's coming with me? What purpose are you living for? Do you live on purpose for the glory of God? And so what does that look like in your life? What does that look like in your life? Uh, for me, it's open hands. If God says, hey, this is what I'm calling you to, it's, all right, let's go. Hey, this is where I'm leading your family. All right, let's go. Does that look the same in your life? Or, before God, are your hands closed? God, I'll do anything but this. I'll give you everything but this. I'll live and glorify you in every area of my life but here. Live on purpose to the glory of God. There was a, a missionary. Um, his last name was C.H. Studd. His name was a missionary in India and China and Africa. And he had a, a quote or a, a poem said, Only one life will soon be passed. And I want to read this to you. I'll try not to get tongue-tied, but listen to the meaning of this poem. I think it's helpful. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart only one life will soon be passed only what's done for christ will last that's a true statement for all of us in the room we talked about this yesterday 85 years right miss octavia that's a that's a healthy long life god blessed her with an impactful life this place was packed but 85 years goes by like that only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Oh, let my love with fervor burn and from the world not let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I'll know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. That's what I want to be said of my life. I want to live on purpose for the glory of God. Are you living purposely for the glory of God? What's the purpose of your life this morning? What got you out of bed this morning? What are you looking forward to in the future? 
If it's making much of Jesus, you're on the right path. I encourage you to live on purpose for the glory of God. And then we keep reading. When you go to chapter 12, you look at verses 27 to 43. And what you'll see, as the people lived on purpose for God, their joy is being filled. They're able to worship joyfully. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27, first part of uh, verse 28, we read this. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs and thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, lairs. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem. The one thing I love about this chapter, and this is, there's, there's going to be a few side notes here. Do you notice how many people participate in living on purpose for God and worshiping joyfully? You've got gatekeepers. You've got uh, temple servants. You've got priests. You've got the Levites. You've got gatekeepers. I don't even know what that is. I guess they open and shut the gate. Doesn't seem real exciting. And yet every task is important and glorifies God. Another side note, Nehemiah 12.30, I love this. So they're getting ready to, to walk around the wall and, and worship God. It says, when the priests, in verse 30, when the priests and Levites have purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates and the wall. So, so they're getting ready to worship God, and it says that the priests purified themselves and the people ceremonially. You know what ceremonially means? It went through the. It symbolizes something. It actually didn't purify them. It's pointing to something. Now this is important. This is why we sung the hymn that we sung. In Hebrews ten ten through twelve, it says, "We have been made holy. We've been made purified. How? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all." Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Right? That didn't work. It was pointing to something. But when the priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins himself, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because he was finished. We have been made purified. And then I love this in 1 John 1, 8 to 9. And this is just a recommendation for you. When we gather for worship, this is a good thing to go through every time. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a beautiful promise. That will enable you to worship with joy. Your sins are covered. And it's not cheap grace. Covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. So that, that was the, a, a little side note. We, we keep going back in Nehemiah 12, 31. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall, right toward the dung gate. I think I know what that was. Don't want to be close to the dung gate. It doesn't smell too well. Next, <clears throat> Ezra leads this group along the southern side of the wall. Nehemiah goes with the other group on the northern side of the wall. And this is what we read, verse 38 and 40 of chapter 12. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction, 
I followed them on the top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens and the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshanah gate, the fish gate, the tower of Henanel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs then gave thanks and took their places in the house of God, and so did I, together with half of the officials. So you've got to get this picture. The people who have moved into the city are experiencing this massive choir going down one side of the wall, and at the same time, another massive choir going down another side of the wall, and they're filling up the city with worship of God. And do you remember some of the trash talkers when the wall wasn't up? You remember what they said? It was in Nehemiah 4.3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, will break down their stone wall. You had a lot of hecklers. A lot of people saying, Dad, Why are you focused on God? What are you going to do? Well, in a couple months, they had two choirs on that wall, and it was secure enough to keep them safe. It's an amazing thing what God can do. We keep going. Verse 43, and this is where you see the city filled with joy. And on that day, they offered great sacrifice. This is verse 43. On that day, they offered great sacrifice, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now, I want you to catch this. Where was the joy? In the city. In the city. The women and children, who were, who, who were those? Those were the ones that moved into the city. Those who said, I'm going to live on purpose for the glory of God. Guess what they experienced? The joy of God. Because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. Our world will tell you your joy will be found in everything but God. And if you go after it, you're going to be left empty-handed. But when you pursue God... When he is the purpose of your life, what you will find is abundant joy. That's what they found, and the city is filled with it. It reminds us of what happens in Ezra when they laid the foundations of the temple. They said the city was filled with joy, and you could hear it miles away. It's an amazing thing when God fills a city with joy. Do you want to know how cities are filled with joy today? It's not by choirs going around singing we see how cities are filled with joy you look at the book of acts you're going to see a city you're going to see a family you're going to see an individual filled with joy and so just take notes don't try to turn there because we're going to move quickly but you're going to see how the gospel multiplies joy in Acts chapter 8, the, the church is being persecuted, and because of the persecution, people getting arrested, thrown in jail, they are spreading. And as they spread, they tell people about Jesus. It says in verse 4, Now those who were scattered about went preaching the word. Philip went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So there was much joy in the city. Jesus brings the joy. In Acts 13, 47 to 48, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. The gospel, saving people, joy, filling up the city. 
In Acts 16, 31 to 34, there's a jailer. They have already beaten Paul. Right? He's sitting in jail, but he's singing hymns. All of a sudden, the doors open up, and the jailer's about to kill himself. And Paul's like, hey, don't do that. And he shares the gospel with the jailer, shares it with him and his family. And the family believes and is baptized. And this is what we read in there. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire whole household that he had believed in God. Or, one last example in Acts chapter 8. You have Philip going to a man who is named the Ethiopian eunuch. And he's in a chariot. And he's reading the scroll from Isaiah. And he says, hey, who is this talking about? Himself or another? And it says that Philip jumped up in the chariot and beginning with that scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And then later we read, after he's baptized, and when they come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Ethiopia was transformed by the gospel. But do you see how when the gospel moves, how joy is multiplied? Now, here's my question. Is your house, where you live, filled with joy? Is your street that you live on, would it be known as a street that's filled with joy? What about your city? Would Covington be known as a city filled with joy? It could be. Think about your city. Is your city known as a city filled with joy? It could be. I, I will tell you this. People are desperate for the joy of God. Uh, you saw this. Um, Wilmore is a city of 6,000 people. And over two weeks, 50,000 people flocked to this little city by Lexington for a revival to, to see what's going on, what God is doing. And I will say there was joy on the campus. But, you know, that doesn't have to be unusual. God can do that here. How long will it take to get the gospel to 13th Street, to Latonia Terrace, to Birch Avenue, to your street? What if, what if you didn't have to move someplace? God's not asking you to move someplace, but he is asking you to take a message to somebody. If you're living on purpose for God... The only answer is okay. And you want to know what will be awesome? As you go and you tell others about Jesus and they experience the forgiveness of sin, that all of their regret and shame can be covered by the blood of Christ, they're going to worship God with joy. I'm telling you, our city can be filled with joy, but it won't if they don't hear the good news, if they don't hear about the God of joy. So here you have the, the city, Jerusalem, filled with joy. Two choirs going back and forth. What a picture. And then the chapter concludes with people giving sacrificially. And I'll read this and, and then uh, say some brief words and we'll close. Look at verse 44. <clears throat> at that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruit and tithes, fields around the towns and were bringing in the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites they performed their service their God the service purification and 
also the musicians and gatekeepers according to the commands of David, the son of Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there have been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise of thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, so covering those hundred years coming back from exile, all Israel contributed to the daily portions for the musicians and gatekeepers. They also set aside portions for other Levites, and the Levites set aside portions for the descendants of Aaron. This is a tough time for God's people. They don't have a lot of wealth, but what do they have? Generosity. And this is what I have found. If you've ever seen dominoes, one knocks over one, knocks over another. This is what I've noticed. If people live on purpose for the glory of God, and they worship God joyfully, then those people will automatically give sacrificially. Why? Because they understand God owns it all anyways. So whatever he calls me to give, I'm going to give. If it's my time, I'm going to give it. If it's a talent or ability that God's blessed me with, he's given it to me to glorify him. I'm going to use it for his glory. How are you giving sacrificially? If you're not, you might want to look at what you're worshiping and who you're living for. You see this, there's a church in Macedonia, and I want you to see how all three of these are connected with them. Paul speaking, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God and has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So you see how those three are connected. The Macedonians first gave themselves to God. They said, all of us, you have whatever you bless us with it's in your hands and when you give yourself fully to the lord you're going to be filled with joy i love that uh, did you see what they had in abundance it wasn't money it wasn't people it was joy because they had god and then they were known for their generosity and, and i can tell you that in this church there are many who are very generous, who give sacrificially. Resources, time, talent, unbelievable. Unbelievable, and we thank you for that. So as I, I read this, man, I long for the day when you look at verse 43 in chapter 12, and on that day they offer great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing and Jerusalem could be heard far away. I long for that day to be true for our city. It's not true right now in Covington. But one day I believe it will be. And I want to point to why I believe. It goes back to verse 2 of chapter 11. It says, The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. They were commended because they were risking their lives moving back to the city. And in the New Testament, we see someone else who risked his life to go back to Jerusalem. It wasn't safe for him to go there. And as a matter of fact, he was talking to his disciples, and he said, hey, we got to go back. My boy Lazarus, he's having a little tough time. 
Got a little sick. He fell asleep. Got to go wake him up. Well, he's got to go back towards Jerusalem. And last time he was in Jerusalem, Jesus was almost killed, right? They picked up stones to kill him. And Thomas, one of his disciples, said, hey, Jesus, might not be a good idea. And then he turns to the other disciples. He's like, hey, but let us go with him so we may die too. Now, he may have been being sarcastic, but I like that type of answer. Well, if Jesus is going there, it might be dangerous. We might die, but if he's going, I'm going. And it says that in Luke 9, 51, that Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem. He said that as the appointed time drew near, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know what happens in Jerusalem? He's crucified. He's nailed to a tree. He's murdered, put to death, buried in a tomb. But then three days later, bursts out of the grave. Death couldn't hold him. And that's where and in whom we find our joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. Lord, we have so many people in different stages of life. But Lord, you do call us to live for your glory. And so I ask that you help us see our hearts this morning. Convict us of things that we're living for that we shouldn't be. Convict us of things we think will bring us joy but won't. Father, help us run to you. Help us live for your glory. I ask that you show us how to do that in each stage of life. Help moms know how to live for your glory uh, in their families, in their home, in their work. Help dads understand how to glorify you with their children and leading their families spiritually. I pray that you help all of those that are working glorify you in the places that you've placed them to bring glory, to be a light for you. I pray the streets that we are on, that we live for your glory and not for our own comfort. Father, I pray that you fill the city up with joy as people hear about your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.